Welcome to the Dixie Polis Podcast. My name's Travis. And this is Luke. We are Southern Men De-Reconstructing the South. One of the things that we like to do is uh, is to, you know, I, I say it, fantasize political theories uh, within right-wing circles. Uh, what, what do I mean by that? I mean, well, you know, for us, it started about, you know, intellectual conversations about uh, libertarianism uh, or ANCAPism or, you know, various other political theories. Uh, now that we're no longer in those circles, it always has to, you know, revolve around what does Southern nationalism look like? What does, um, you know, is a monarchy superior to a uh, republic? You know, these types of, um, I don't know, sparring matches that we tend to get in. But I think we might be missing, you know, missing the forest for the trees. And what what does a government need to do first and foremost? So instead of just advocating for one particular political theory, uh, what does the scripture say that um, the civil magistrate ought to do? Not what kind of so. I mean, we'll get into this a little bit later, but I, I'm I'm almost positive that um, scripture does not advocate for one singular type political structure. Uh, it's it's you know not what the left says and that Jesus advocated for socialism. It's not what the right says and that you know Jesus advocated for republicanism. You know, using the kind of meme right there, uh, <laughs> Jesus wasn't a Republican. Um, but rather, what does Scripture actually say about the civil magistrate sphere? Um, I, I'm thinking of uh, of two passages, but the first one we're going to get into is Romans 13. I know for, you know, like you're saying, we like to fantasize about what would our ideal government look like? What would uh, Luke Capistan look like? What would Travivistan look like, right? Um, and instead of instead of starting there, uh, that that acts as if we have the authority to just make something up, right? Like a a group of people can just decide how they're going to operate and move from there. But the scripture outlines responsibilities and duties, and powers of the civil magistrate, whatever form that takes, and it outlines the responsibilities and the duties of the citizen. So I think uh, instead of getting the big brain takes, the first thing I, I think we need to re recognize is that a civil government's going to look slightly different depending on the people. That whatever government is governing over. Different people have different desires. They have different emphases. They have different um, cultural ideas. And so uh, what kinds of government are valid? Well, that's kind of, you know, like you're saying, I don't think Scripture really advocates for one single position. Um, I think there are themes that a government has to take in order to be a valid government, according to Scripture. Um, but it, it could look very different 
And again, we're going to get into that. So this is counterbalance between the citizen and the magistrate and how those two individuals and groups interact with one another. So I think with Romans 13, uh, we need to back up just a little bit into Romans 12. And I'll be reading uh, from the Holman Christian Standard uh, just because it's easier for me to read. Love must be without hypocrisy, detest evil, cling to what is good, to family affection to one another with brotherly love, outdo one another in showing honor, do not lack diligence, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in affliction, be persistent in prayer, share with the saints in their needs, pursue hospitality, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be in agreement with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Try to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, on your part, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for his wrath. For it is written, Vengeance belongs to me, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will, heap, you will be heaping fiery coals upon his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Everyone must submit to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist are instituted by God. So then, the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have its approval. For government is God's servant for your good. If you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason. The government is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. Therefore you must submit, not only because of wrath, but because also of your conscience. For the <clears throat> and for this reason you pay taxes, since authorities are God's public servants, continually attending to these tasks. Pay your obligations to everyone, taxes to those who, who owe taxes, taxes to those you owe taxes, tolls to those you owe tolls, respect to those who you owe respect, and honor. To those you owe honor. So we see here this this counterbalance of Christians are supposed to love even their enemy. And it's emphasized here that you know if your enemy is hungry, give him food. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Because you're bringing condemnation on him by doing good to him. Now, of course, there are limits to this. This is not a, um, you know, bankrupt your family kind of a situation. And there are other passages of Scripture that, that talk about the wisdom of doing this kind of thing. Um, but you're supposed to take on a subservient role to the magistrate. And then in turn, the magistrate is supposed to act towards the good. And the good here is a moral good, general statement of good. And it's supposed to attack that which is evil. 
uh, which is, I, I believe the King James uses the word evil, and I think that's better than just bad. Um, it's not just inappropriate, it's not inappropriate conduct that the magistrate is concerned with. It's concerned with evil, specifically. So it's clear that, uh, actually, I've never even noticed that, so, so I want to go back to, uh, to Romans 12 and how just flawlessly Romans 12, 9 just flows right into Romans 1, like that particular section should be its own chapter. Mm-hmm. And, and people seem to always pull that just straight out of context. Like it, it literally goes, you know, all the way from love. The love flows into the civil magistrate, and that's the reason he, he you know, he is ordained by God to protect the people. Which is odd because he's writing this during the time of Nero, right? Um, and, and so I'm sure there's all types of evil that is being allowed, but at the same time, there are certain evils that are so evil that even Nero was putting a stop to it. Well, in the, the refrain here in chapter 12, um, the comment is vengeance belongs to me, or, you know, as the King James says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. And then, and then in uh, uh, in chapter thirteen, uh, in the second half of verse four, it says, "For the government is God's servant. The government is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong." So, in one passage, he's saying, "Look, you're not supposed to." Avenge yourself. And then in the next passage, he says, my, my servant is the state. My servant is the magistrate. He's going to go out and provide that vengeance for you. So you have laws the magistrate is supposed to follow to pursue justice, to, to pursue restitution. And this was much of the Old Testament law. Um, and, you know, as, as we both believe, the general equity of the Old Testament law comes into the New Testament church. So the, the principles that applied in the Old Testament, you know, if, you're, if, you're, um, if your ox kills, kills a, a man, then you owe restitution, and you're supposed to kill the ox. That's both. You lose the ox and you pay restitution. If you steal from someone, you're supposed to pay back seven times stolen. So it... That's one of the duties of the state. Well, one of the problems, I think, though, is, is most people have been so far removed from an actual um, just system that it, they, they think that it's almost inevitable that we're going to have, you know, they, they either go one of two ways. They either go into total nihilistic despair and say, um, well, government, there, there is no good government because all government is made up of evil men. And then on the other hand, they go full, you know, the government is all good. Um, right. And I think there needs to be a balance there. But anyways, what my original point was was to say that that we've been so long without a, a just government, like a, a government that upheld God's law, that we don't even know what is just. We think locking people in prison is just. When in fact, no, that is evil and wicked. Yes, they might have done some bad things, but we should still serve, show mercy upon them as in Mago days and executing them. 
and not just having them locked in a cage. Um, and, and also just the fact that there is no system of forgiveness that we have within our current penal code, um, it, at least with the um, the Old Testament law, as long as you didn't commit something that was worthy of death, then you were welcomed back into society. Like if you stole something, you would have repaid what you stole. Plus, I think it was like a third more or something like that. And then you would be welcomed back in society and forgiven for that crime. We don't have that today. You know, you're, you're perpetually a, 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 a felon for the rest of your life. And you'll have um, murderers who, according to the scripture, should be put to death, um, go free, because we think that's just. And people who steal end up losing way more than they ought because they go to a, a prison. And the prison is not meant to give them a vocation to pay back. It's not a debtor's prison. We've, you know, in the United States have seen debtor's prison as some abhorrent evil. Um, and so instead, we just put people in a cage where they are given over to... They're given over to the group dynamics and the the psychological tricks of the guards to fight one another and to be in opposing camps in the prisons. And once they come out, it's very hard for them to re-enter society, which the whole point of a debtor's prison was that you would work your debt off and then you would go back to society. But the entire time, you're still with society. You haven't been removed from society haven't been isolated. And so it, it's actually a counterproductive thing. Uh, a, a lot of times when people go to prison, they become entrenched in relationships and they get into gangs, they get into drugs, um, and they get wrapped up in all of that instead of actually repenting of their, their evil that they've done. So... In since we're on the whole prison topic, I'll, I'll, there's a there's one out in Louisiana. I can't remember which which one it is. It might be Angola. It might. I know Angola used to be like the worst prison in America because it was literally a plantation. Like you were out there in the field, freaking working like a slave. Uh, but there's this one that it's it's like an entire closed off community, right? Where where these people can go and get mechanic skills. They can get trade skills. Uh, and you're literally doing the work there. And in my opinion, I don't have a problem with that type of prison, you know, uh, because you're actually being useful. Like there was this, there was an ASE certified mechanic. Of course, he, unfortunately, he was serving, you know, a life sentence for murder. But so he would never get out. But he was ASE certified and um, several other different certifications. So he was, you know, actually turning cars over left and right, trying to fix them. But anyways, um, this is kind of a rabbit trail, but but uh, yeah. Yeah, they used to be much more popular, and a lot of them got shut down because, you know, debtor's prison is evil for some reason. Right, we, we can't have this cheap labor coming out of the prisons. No, we can't have that. Right. We've established from Romans 13 that um, 
that there is a, a proper and functional use of government in the New Testament. So in the in the Old Testament, you know, God established his law and his nation was supposed to follow his law. Well, Paul seems to assume that there is actually moral laws that all men must follow. We've established by those passages that there are legitimate uses for civil government. So, therefore, what are the warnings that are given against civil government, right? So we're, we're told to follow and obey, but are we supposed to follow and obey, obey blindly? Um, and and I, I don't think the scriptures teach that either. Some people seem to think that. Uh, let's see. So, so in Samuel, a little, little bit of a recap. So the people come out of Israel. They cross into the promised land under Joshua. So basically it was like a military dictatorship at that time. You know, kind of being anachronistic, but that's kind of what it was. Before that, God established his civil, uh, ceremonial, and moral law. He gave those to the Levitical priests through Moses, and um, they were taught to uphold that. But once they get into the promised land, they're basically just all individual tribes living together in some sort of harmony. But in Samuel, um, it, it says that the elders of Israel were gathered together and they called Sam, Samuel and they said they wanted a king. Right? Well, Samuel gave this warning about kings. And Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people and asked of him a king. And he said, this will be a matter of the king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons and, and appoint them for himself in a draft uh, for his chariots to be his horsemen, and he shall run before his chariots. And he will appoint them captains over thousands and captains over fifties, and he will set them to ear his ground and to reap his harvest and to make an instrument of war and instruments of his chariot. He will take your daughters to be confectionaries and to be cooks and to be bakers. He'll even draft the women. Um... He will take a tenth of your seed, of your vineyard, and give to his officers and his servants. He's going to tax you. And then he will take your men servants and your maid servants and the goodliest young men and your asses and put them to work. He's going to steal from you. <laughs> he will take a tenth of your sheep, and he, ye shall be his servants, and ye shall cry out to that day because of the king, which ye have chosen. You and the Lord will not hear you in that day. So, so these are the Sorry. warnings saying, "Hey, <laughs> hey, y'all, y'all think y'all got it bad over here without a king? You know, y'all are living the the this is that that argument. This argument actually what drove me to an, ancapism. You know, you were you were living without a king before, and you were doing just fine. But hey, he's going to come and tax you. A king's going to be a curse upon you because he's going to take your children. He owns then, everything you know, that you own. Yes, everything." I mean, of course, a 10% tax, I mean, if that's a curse, then I, you know, compared to what we have now, yeah, i take it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you um, know, the, the again, I mean, the, they wanted this king to replace God, right? Because God told them to worship him and to have him as their king. And you had rulers, you had smaller kings, you had judges that God had given the people to give them justice, to give them stability, to give them um, the covenants and grace. And instead of taking what God gave them, 
we want a king like all the other nations want. Yeah, ain't that just a terrible argument? Like, hey, the all these other people have a king. Why don't we have a king? I want a king. You know? Right. You know, it, it would have been a ripe land for Huey Long, though. He'd just say, every man's a king. <laughs> Um, but, but yeah, that's the, the, this was really a form of idolatry, which I, I think that we deal with today more than, more than we deal with ANCAPs or anarchists. I don't think the anarchists and, and the, uh, the ANCAPs and the libertarians are the, the, the majority. I think they're minority. I think the vast majority of people have a problem with worshiping the state and worshiping the government. And instead of, you know, like charity or um, protecting the neighborhood or, you know, any of those civil civic duties that were called, that were <clears throat> any of those civic duties, which were traditionally, especially in the West, the responsibility of every man in the community, we just now sub that out to the state. And it's just easier for us to do that. Um, and so we... We have allowed the state to take over everything, essentially. We we have um, we have exported our manhood, quite yeah. literally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they they provide. You know, I'm, I'm I won't beat my dead horse here for a minute. I mean, this this is how single motherhood became such a big deal is it was subsidized, and so now the government is their husband. I mean, all all it asks is that you destroy the family. And it'll give you everything. So, um, when, 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 okay, so this, this might be a little controversial topic. When do you think the first actual government was founded? Do you think that was post, post, post fall or pre fall? Uh, I think it was Garden of Eden. Okay, yeah, the same for me too. So, so what well, we kind of drove me to that little conclusion. Um, my, I think I might be going on a tangent here, but that's okay. Um, so, I think what drove me to that conclusion is is if Christ fulfilled pro the the role of prophet, priest, and king, then Adam must also have been in those roles of prophet, priest, and king. Right. Yeah. So. So, so yeah, I would I would think that you know first he's um, it, in my opinion he needed a wife to be a king. Um, yeah, well, he needed a kingdom. Did, I think. Yeah, yeah, he needed a kingdom, and he he would have to have subjects within that kingdom. Right. Um, but so so I think that's when that role was established. At the same time, he was also established as a husband, mm -hmm. um, of Eve. And I don't think you can be a king without being a husband. But that that just the I, point that I wanted to draw from that. I'm, I think I'm reaching a bit far, but it, his kingship authority was actually di derived from his husband authority. So so it had to be from a family that gave him his position as king. Well, that I, makes it, do, do I think there could be. I get what you're laying down. I think there could be an argument, and I'm not saying that this is necessarily true. Um, it's, it would just be a, a a a slight alteration of what you're saying there. Um, in Genesis, 
Um, he sets Adam to naming all of the creatures first. And that, that, that act of naming the, the ancient Near East people would know that that's uh, taking dominion over those people. So, for instance, when God changed Abraham, Abram's name to Abraham, or when he changed Jacob's name to Israel, he was, own, he was saying, I own this person. I'm giving them a name. Um, and so they belong to me. So when Adam goes around and he names all of the creatures, he's taking ownership of them in that moment as God's representative. Uh, and then God takes from him his side woman because man was alone. There was no woman, there was no creature um, there that was fit to be his helpmeet. But I, I think there could be an argument either way, is what I mean. Um, so in, in one sense that he's naming all the creatures, he's taken dominion over them. Uh, but that's the only time in Genesis during the creation that God says something is not good. Um, was that moment. And so it was incomplete. His rule was incomplete until he had a wife. So I want to bring up something that you just said about whenever he was giving the names, you know, he, you said the Near Easterns would say that it's him taking dominion. Yeah. It, it kind of struck out to me there for a second. Um, so so when, whenever you have a child, then you give them your name, or whenever you take a wife, you give them your name, meaning that you have dominion and authority, which, by the way, is one of the reasons that feminists reject taking their husband's name. Yep is because that is a sign of submission to him. Mm -hmm. um, but but not only that, but then when we look at it from, from just like a, you know, a little bit different perspective, bastards were not given their father's name because they were bastards. Like, he did not take ownership of them. And in the same way, we that were, been, the, we that were outside of Christ we're like that, but yet he, you know, the scripture says that God gives us a name. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Anyways, well, you're kind of a rabbit trail. Well, your freedom is in being owned by Christ. Slavery to Christ. You know the the oh. the the soft word bond servant. Even in the King James, it's actually you're a slave, not a a bond servant. <laughs> you're 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 in shackles, but you're in shackles of love. You're in shackles of of duty before your Creator. Who loves you? Um, but then he also equates that with sonship. So sonship is a form of slavery as well. Anyways, that's, that's, yeah, no, that, that's that's you know that's really interesting. I mean, in a similar fashion, when we take on the name of say American Southerners, that type of thing. Um, whereas, you know, we're not, it's not in the same light because we're citizens, not, you know, not slaves to something. We're not owned by the government, though many would think that we are. Um, it's true. I mean, think about it. You know, it, it, there's people out there that think the government has the right to tell you whether or not we can get the jab or not. Okay. So it, where does this scope of authority for government beginning in so scope of Christ's authority over us is you know to the ends of the earth right 
he he has all authority over us. But where does government authority actually begin and end? And, and I think there's a lot of different views within that. So me being more of a theonomist, I would say that the government's the the government's um, authority only begins and ends where scripture says that they actually begin and end. You know, that's that would be enforcing the the civil code and the or not the civil, but the um uh, the moral and then the general equity of the civil. But that, I mean, there's many different you know views on that. I'm not too privy on a lot of them, but some people actually would say that you know government can do whatever they want as long as they don't require you to sin. And then you have to get in like, well, who gets to determine what that sin is? Right. So I mean, if it was big Eva, then you know it would like, for instance, for me, I'm not forcing this belief on any of my other brothers in Christ, but. I believe that taking the 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 uh, the jab, the hokey pokey, would would be would have been sinful. Other people might not have thought. I know many great brothers in Christ that took it. Not not my concern. I, however, think it's sinful. So who gets to determine whether or not that action's sinful, right? And that that would be an issue of conscience, you know. Right, right, right. But at the same time, there, there's many out there. That would that would say that it is not an issue of conscience because the government said for you to you know that you need to do that and because it's not them telling you to like bow down to a false idol or something like that then you should get that because you know love your neighbor. Well, in in reality, they are asking you to bow down to a false idol, and th- and that's that's really what both of our objection would be. I know, I know that would be my objection for sure. It would be partially mine as well. I mean, I mean, I've got like, I've got grand webs of theories on why I'm not going to take that thing. Um, number one being it's fake and gay. That's a very good reason. I have, I I affirm this this message. <laughs> kind of tie in this whole first part together. Um, you know, we, we talk about naming gives authority. And we we even have this kind of language when it comes to our government where we talk about the founding fathers, right? And they they set a, a mode of government forth that we still adhere to today. Um, you know, our our southern patriarchs as as we would see them affirmed that same form of government. They just wanted to have their own government aside from the Yankees, right? They wanted to not be under the same authority as the Yankees because they disagreed with the Yankee on how to live. So the the founding fathers when they established that republic, they were setting up they were naming the country in a sense. They were saying we we are North Carolina, we are Virginia, we are um, uh, Pennsylvania. You know, they, they're naming their states. They give a name to their country. Um, I'm from Mississippi. Mississippi is the name of my country. The people who named it the Mississippi named it that and gave it form and gave it function through the Constitution of the state of Mississippi. So that that is... A form of naming. Um, when you name your child, you're 
pronouncing something on them for what the name means. You're saying this is what you are. So you're you're uh, un completely aside from their will. You're giving them an identity in their uh, essence because your DNA goes uh, and becomes part of them uh, in terms of their personality because part of your spirit is with them and through a relationship by pronouncing their relationship with you through the form of that name. So you do the same thing with governments. You do the same thing with marriage. You do the same thing with a business. You give a business a name. This is my dominion. Uh, you, you saw in, in the past a lot of property when they would build a homestead or they would build a plantation. That homestead or plantation would have a name because they were naming it. This is my kingdom. You are part of my kingdom. This land is part of my kingdom. This people are part of my kingdom. So the the authority that God gave us, and I, and I think this is something we do instinctively, but it's a good um, it's a good way of looking at it. Would be authority comes from the authority, and authority comes from the ability and the competence to give the name of that which you're claiming. Because you shape its identity. And God has given us that power through speech to give names to things, to give names to people. We're talking about, we're going to get into the different kinds of governments that there are, and the different kinds of views that there are, uh, ways in which names can be given and worked out in real time. So the kind of name that you give your country or that you give your kingdom is very important, because it has to be something that works. It has to be something that's practical. I think for the time that it was written, you know, the U.S. Constitution was a very practical document. Um, and it had checks and it had balances. Um, and so there's, there's, you know, as I said at, at the very beginning of this, this episode, you know, different governments for different people is probably a good idea. Uh, because Certain things work with certain people, and certain things don't work with certain people, right? It's it, yeah, the whole uh, Nat Sock thing, um, just to bring up the most glaring, glaring example. Um, right. Everyone seems to think that, you know, Germany's National Socialism will work fine in America. That's stupid. I'm yeah. sorry, if you think that, you're stupid. and it's not even that like okay maybe the form of government's fine but it's not gonna work here if you want to go have it in you know minnesota or wherever i don't care but it's not gonna work in the say i don't think it'll work uh, in minnesota either though well there's a lot more germans up there um let's not get into the german (laughs) (laughs) but 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 then also some of the other some of the other things is is how do you view how do you how do you personally view the government what is your your worldview how you view the world determines what what the best way to view a government right 
So if you're from a radical two kingdoms position, I don't know how you would actually view a government um, because I don't think that the, the system is untenable. And what radical two kingdom is, is that you have Christ's kingdom and then you have worldly kingdoms and the two never intermesh like they, they, they just they just don't do it. They just they're polar opposites. Right. And I, I'm not I'm not I'm not sure how that position is tenable because if Christ is king over the world, then how do you view the government as if it doesn't matter? Well, well it also it, assumes that's a problem. that it derives its it also assumes that it derives its authority from somewhere other than God. Right. Yeah. It has to assume that. And and so, you know, the the two of us here, we would say all authority, you know, we would agree we, we would agree with Romans 13, all authority comes from Christ. It comes from God and it comes from uh understanding what makes organization work, what makes um authority work and then exercising that as a kingdom and spreading that kingdom out uh so the i i think the i think the radical two kingdom view just can't work because it's it dissociates itself from it disassociates the theological from the uh magisterial i guess i want to put it that way yeah, it, and it's just not not you know not rooted in any form of Christian history either, right? Um, unless you're going to go to the 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 very early church when they were constantly being persecuted, but I don't think that's good foundation to stand on, right? Because um, it's not it hasn't been normative. Of course, everybody always says that for the vast majority of Christian history, um, Christianity has always been persecuted. And I'm like. Not not so much in the West. I mean, the West has lived, you know, pretty much under Christendom since, you know, 300 AD. Um, they they have to in read various forms. They have to read here history in a very myopic way to get that as a reality. There, there was a long time, like you're saying, where Christianity essentially ruled. Um, there's there's accounts of, you know, during the sack of Rome. Uh, the, the, um, Goss. Yeah, the Goss. When, when the Goss came up to the priests, um, there were entire armies that stood down before the priests. <laughs> when the, when the uh, uh, main bishop, who is now by the Roman Catholic Church called the Pope, stepped out, um. They gave him deference because they were Christian too, and so they had to step aside and not attack the ministers of their faith. Um, it had a lot of power over um, entire armies that way. So after three hundred, um, after the council was called by Constantine, um, there were still afflictions there was still persecution there were invasions from foreign armies but by and large the the west everybody under the roman empire influenced by the greeks were primed to receive the gospel and most of them did 
yeah. Um, one of the things that uh, one of the things after the the council was called, I think there was the wasn't the edict of Milan. Am I, am I getting my edict right? Uh, where basically Christianity was like recognized as a a, a religion not to be persecuted. Um, but basically, it was it was something like a three hundred percent increase in actual Christians within the Holy Roman Empire. Now, everybody always likes to say that, you know, most of them were probably just doing it to um, to, to grift, right? Like they were just grifters. But I'm not so sure. I mean, wh- why, why should we assume that all of those were false converts, right? I mean, it, well, it just doesn't make a lot of sense because the trend keeps going up from there. The, the other thing that you, that you have to realize is... Um... I can't remember where where this showed up, but uh, it it the the way that the Germans were converted was not through the conversion of the masses, and then that worked its way up to the kings. A lot of times, it was the man of the house that got converted. Everybody in his house now had to live as a Christian, and so it was. Uh, uh, leaders, it was kings, it was fathers, it was husbands who got converted. And then everyone in their house was, you know, he came home and said, hey, look, my house, we're going to live like Christians. And that's what they did. Um, now, as if if you're going to go through and try to um, do a, uh, try to do a person-by-person accounting of who all had regenerate hearts, you know, I, I'm not sure that that's even possible. Um, I think dismissing that out of hand, um, especially you know as, as Baptists are want to do, I think just dismissing that out of hand is. Um, I think it's ignoring the way that God has operated through history. You have to at least recognize that happened, and that you know kings and uh, heads of households, especially when the when the Germans were largely pagan and a king, German king, suddenly converted, he didn't do that because it was popular. He did it because he got converted. Yeah, I mean, there's not really a whole lot to to, uh, to gain from joining a new, um, a brand spanking new religion, right? Right. Uh, when everybody else in your in your household worships Odinson or something like that, you know, the tree the tree god or you know, the magical pixies in the river. Um, it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to say, oh, no, that, all that is malarkey. And I'm Christian now. Everybody's Christian. Right. But uh, but but speaking of converting the fathers, typically the fathers would be, clan, you know, heads of clans, right? right. So so they would be the government, governing, a stru- they're the governing authority over this particular domain. And, and I think that that, goes great into uh, to one of the other points that I wanted to make was that the government should want to foster good Christian religion. It only makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, th- think about it. it. If it, since Christianity has the most just God, therefore we should want the government to actually back it. Right. Not, not just make it eat. And I'm not saying have an official state church or anything like that. I- I'm just going with a strict reformist view or magist, you know, reform magisterial view of that Christianity should be the number one religion in the land, and we should foster it so that it is easy 
to be a Christian here. Yeah. Um, that, that also has its cons, right? Because then you get a lot of fluff in the church. And if, if you were respecting Christian religions, it's easy to be a Christian. So anybody could be a Christian, even the, the you know, the drunk down the street. But, um, and, and I think the standard, you know, the standard view of, you know, you're not a radical 2K or you're just a regular guy on the street Christian. I think that they would agree with that statement as well. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, now, now I would go further and say that we should only recognize those churches that, uh, that affirm the Nicene and um, Apostles Creed. Yeah. You know, I would sure. go that far, but, but it, at least with, the, the standard, the standard, you know, the standard, you know, conservative view makes a lot more sense than the radical two kingdoms. And, and all the R2K guys are, are supposedly theologians. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, and that I think that's a, a good case. You know, there's a there's a scripture that always comes to my mind in in some situations. And this seems like a really good application of it, you know. Uh, it gives a lot of different examples of this, but you know, one of the one of the statements in this verse says, "God chooses the humble things of the world to confound the the wise, right?" Um, and He always chooses those things which are small or that are not really regarded to take over and to decimate those things which are really, you know, erudite or uh, uh, powerful. So I, I think. You know, the average man on the side of the street has a lot more uh, wisdom than the professional theologian who's who's he's steady reading all of his books. But, you know, very, honestly, very few of these guys have gone out there and done work with their hands. You know, a lot of those guys are, are white. I'm not saying there's not any any blue collar guys. The overwhelming majority of those guys, you know, they're, you know, pretty wealthy or they're at least not hurting. And they're they're just bookworms that have been in books for a very long time. And there's a lot to be said for that. But they don't have any hands-on experience with how the world works. Very few of them do. And so what you see with the standard guy on the side of the street, you know, the average Joe conservative, he does have his hands in the world. He knows how to practically, you know, if everything burnt and all the books disappeared overnight, he'd be out, he'd be able to go out there and fix your, your vehicle, or he'd be able to fix your plumbing, right? He knows how to do things. And there's a, a groundedness that that gives that kind of a man where he has a lot more sense about him in some ways. But I, I think this is one of those areas where for sure the, the blue collar is able to see how the world works, really works, and is able to interact with it a lot better. Yeah, I, you know what I've always said is I, th I think that anybody that aspires to be a uh, to be a pastor or a theologian should uh, should work the construction trade for a little while. Yeah. Um, just, it, man, there's too many people that went through seminary that don't have calluses on their hands. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Yep. Um, but I mean, okay, so so far we've kind of established that that the 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 government is ordained by God. 
but there is sinful people in there that are going to be used as his hand of justice. Let's talk about a couple different forms of government and 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 see what which do we think is the best for our particular people. Um, I'm going to start with the one that we have right now, and that that well that we're supposed to have right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm not so sure we have it anymore. But but it's basically a constitutional republic. So the great news about this is is that we are a a system of true checks and balances. I'm not talking about the 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 presidency can check and balance the Supreme Court that can check and balance the the Congress and and all that you know clown circus up there. I, I'm talking about we we live in different states and our states have more authority than what most people actually think um, because if we're going to talk about chain of succession here the gov- the government closest to the people has been ordained by God to defend that people so I think your sheriff is the most important political figure in your life um, could be anyways sheriff is actually, he should be yeah you should know the name of your sheriff um, but with the republic style system you know we have if the federal government wants to clap back, then the states just say, um, no, we're not, we're not doing that by the way, which is what they should have done in abortion all along is just simply ignore bro yep. and, and enforce the laws. Uh, they had that authority. And how do I know they had that authority? Well, we can look at, at Colorado and Washington and all these other states that, you know, legalized marijuana but there was a liter- literally a federal law against it. Well, with abortion, there was no federal law at all to violate. There was only a court opinion. And, and right. That's exactly what it was. It was an opinion, and it was a terrible opinion. That's why it got overturned. Um, but whenever we have this, this, this type of scale, typically the federal government's going to back off way before a state will. Um, because the, the state, in, in my my honest opinion, holds all the power. The federal government can't collect taxes from that state if the ta- if the if the state isn't sending the tax dollar. Now, whether or not our guys, quote unquote, our guys, actually have the the cojones to to you know withhold the purse from the federal government's another story. But we actually do have that power. Um, but anyways, I've ranted a little bit too long. You can. Well, I, I think um, the republic is probably the best form of government to exercise um, the doctrine of the lesser magistrate, uh, and it's it's very very much in line with what you're talking about, where the the lower magistrates can just simply um, tell the higher level magistrate, "I'm not going to obey you because what you're doing is against God's law. This is unjust, right?" Um, and that really comes from you know the the doctrines of the lesser magistrate really comes from the Scottish uh, reform tradition. Um, I think it was Knox who really formulated it. Uh, I could be wrong about that, but um, essentially, it it is that authority is given by God, but it's it's developed through practical means. Um, and this this works even in uh, dictatorship. So, for instance. Uh, Pharaoh, there was very practical means by which God 
caused Pharaoh to become the authority that he was, and that was through um, famine, and Joseph saved up the currency of the day, which was grain. Um, and when people needed food, he would give them grain in, in uh, uh, you know, exchange for their property or even their, their persons. People would sell themselves into slavery or they would sell everything they had to Pharaoh so that they could eat. And so God used that. He used Joseph to, to make Pharaoh power that he was and then when the people of Israel through their um, their slavery were made to confront Egypt God stripped Pharaoh of everything for the purpose of demonstrating his power so he took a bunch of sheep herders which the Egyptians abhorred animals uh, 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 herding animals rather and so they they thought it was a disgusting job. And so he brought in a bunch of sheep herders and goat herders uh, who gave all of the wealth to Egypt. Egypt became, you know, mighty in its own eyes. And then God used this bunch of sheep herders who had been in slavery for so many years and brought Egypt to its knees. And so there, there's very practical ways in which God builds up authority. Uh, and and with, a, with a republic, it's uh, do you trust the person that you're going to elect as your magistrate? Do you believe that that man's going to act in your best interest? Um, and so it, it has a lot to do with his reputation and how he looks to the public. Now, the, I guess one of the cons, one of the big cons of this is, especially in our current system, which is supposed to be a constitutional republic, but um, it's it, it, when, when corruption is pervasive on every level, because uh, we have a federal republic, so there's different levels of authority. Uh, when, when corruption is pervasive on every level, well, then... The government becomes an evil unto itself, where it can't actually act out its mandate from Romans 13. Uh, and you saw this with Rome. You saw this with a lot of the smaller republics throughout Italy. And because um, Italy was known for its republics um, throughout Italy and through some of Ger uh, Germania, um, when, when the the magistrates became corrupt well then the whole the whole uh republic fell apart and it was usually conquered by another foe uh because because of the checks and balances that are put into a republic um when these checks and when these parties that are hold that are supposed to hold one another accountable are at war with its own people and at war with one another they end up coming a lot into deadlock because it's all about um, anger and resentment and attacking the other people. So the the Italians were known for they were they were they were known for 
killing the competition before they could run for office, for instance. Um, this happened across Italy. Uh, read read um, um, The Prince by Machiavelli, and he talks about this, the political assassinations that were rampant throughout um, Italy at the time. And so there was this face of honor where in public, you know, oh, I'm going to go down fighting and then, uh, you know, I'm going to I'm going to fight you head on. And then, you know, you'd send an assassin to go put poison in his porridge. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and we're not we're not quite at the political assassination level yet. Although there's certain. Uh, politicians who have. Certainly been surrounded by dead friends and acquaintances. Um, let the reader understand or hear understand. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, right now we have a a republic that is effectively no longer a republic because every level of the government is infested with corruption, and it's it's turned into a top down system instead of a bottom up system like it was intended to be. Yeah, bit of a rant. Sorry. Well, no, no, but but also, okay. So, one of the things that I did pull out from my libertarian days was um, what was actually the understanding between a renter versus owner style government, and a a republic mm. is a heavily renter style government. So, what what do I mean by this? And, and I I mean essentially like you have no vested interest within this this system that you're a part of, so you can lie, cheat, and steal your way through it, and there's not going to be any repercussions for you. So you can, you know, dog ear millions and billions of dollars to send to your friends. And then you're going to get a kickback when you get out of office. Right. You know, and, and it's all about you versus where as an owner, you would, you would want, you wouldn't have frivolous wars because that's coming out of your coffers. You know, right. you're the one that's, 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 you know, held liable for this. So, you have a little bit like of a slower approach because you want to actually leave a legacy. And so that that's one of the bad things about a republics, but it's a good thing about a monarchy. So there was a time and, and I'm still, I'm still, you know, I'm open to the idea, but a couple of years ago, I, I, I was, I would have described myself as a monarchist. Um, and, and that's because that, that that explanation that I gave about renter versus owner style government, I think is I think is a is a very compelling argument because if you want to have a stable society, you want somebody that wants that society to to remain solid for as long as possible. And and with monarchies, you're you're not constantly bickering over who won the twenty twenty election, you know, <laughs> right. or 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 who's getting the government gibbs or whatever because you know you, you have know a clear exactly chain of authority going to happen right 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 there there's a you know you can point and say that's the king and then you wouldn't have you know the whole not my president bit you know you'd be like yeah that's my king but he's a dick you know <laughs> um <laughs> i'm not i'm not really sure you could get away with that but in secret in the pubs you know, you might be able to get away with that type of talk. Depending on the king. Depending on the king. Right, right, right. Um, you know, if it, if it was a good king, then 
and, and that's the thing. Like you know, with with, with a representative style republic, you're you're probably always going to have bad apples, and and it's going to be far more frequent than if you just had one king. You know, you because you could have a good king or you could have a bad apple, it, and the bad apple is easier to take care of than fifty to a hundred really bad apples. Right. And and with a, a monarchy, um, I think it's much closer to the. <laughs> so I've, I've been reading Evelyn a little bit. Um, and I and I think there's some legitimacy to the um, divine right argument, where I, I I used to have I used to dismiss that out of hand. Oh, divine right! That's just a way for them to make money. Um, where I don't think that's true anymore. Um, Evelyn makes a very strong case for a a king being the ideal citizen. Uh, the ideal, so if we had a king of the South, for instance, he would be the ideal Southern. He would epitomize what the Southern is and who he is. And this this is carried over to a lesser extent into the Republic, because the Republic cares more about the policy. Whereas with a, a monarch, you're dealing not strictly with the... He's not simply a magistrate. He is also your actual representative. He is as you would be if perfected. Uh, and, and I don't mean perfected in like a uh, Christological sense, as we're going to be perfected in heaven. Uh, I just meant at, at you as the ideal Southern, in this case, the example I'm using. Um, and so that, that carries spiritual, that carries... Um, other connotations that wouldn't normally be carried over with, oh, he's just my, you know, my governor, or he's, he's on the city board, or he's on the, you know, um, he's, he's the, the state representative or the state senator. That's not quite the same as saying, you know, this guy epitomizes what it means to be Southern. So, so I'm not, I'm not purely convinced on divine, right? I mean, my, my, my entire thing would be like, Take someone like Trump, for instance. No one can argue that that man is wealthy. He freaking, you know, he any he would be equivalent to any medieval king, hands down. Like he he would have more wealth than any one of those. Oh yeah. So, but what he does is he's he's raising his son up to actually take over the business. So in in a sense, a king is like a CEO, and he is raising his children up. To be the next great CEO to carry his name forward to forever. I mean, Trump's great grandfather when he first came, uh, I think his great grandfather, great great grandfather, one of the two, when he first came to America, he went ahead and built hotels out uh, during the gold rush. And then he came back. I think he was originally a barber. I can't remember. It, it essentially, Donald Trump now is carrying on his great grandfather's name. And it's just continually going and getting bigger and bigger now. And Trump talks about it like that. He's mm -hmm. very, he's very consciously aware of that. Yeah. And, and I think that I think that's something that you know we as Southerners need need to actually understand is what we do now matters because our children are going to carry on what we do now. Right. Um. 
and and so that that's with within the monarchy and actually this is this is grows straight into to uh, a segue into my favorite form of government and that would be a tanistry uh basically a scottish clan system which i do believe was what governed israel before samuel 8 when they didn't have a king i believe it was you know they, it talks about elders sitting at the gate uh there's no surprise that elders are appointed to lead the church right and i believe that that would be elders from amongst you not you're calling an elder in i understand sometimes you have to do that but you should you should always be looking forward to the next generation stepping up and taking that process so an so elder was actually an elder it was an elderly it was an older man who was full of wisdom uh didn't yes. you know throw his life away so there's this there's this combination of competence because actual wisdom he knows what he's talking about. He's been doing this for a while. Uh, he's shown himself to to be able to do what he's supposed to do rightly. And now he's an older man. And so instead of doing all of the pushing and driving like he was supposed to as a young man, now he's providing wisdom to the younger men on how they ought to go or how they ought to act. Right, right. And, and you know, with... Within this within this entire system, you're, you're going to have different levels of patriarchs. You're going to have like heads of heads of households, heads of say, say the heads of their households, which would be like the the grandfather. And then you know if you're so lucky, you would have the great grandfather that would be over an entire tribe or something like that. I mean, it, it's fairly common throughout you know most civilizations. Um, if you want to call them civilizations, I'm talking more like you know the um, the American Indians, um, even you know, on down into Mexico. Of course, they started to get a little bit more primitive. Yeah. Um, uh, but but uh, you know, I since I'm European, I always like to you know pull off the Scottish system where where you have Clan Mac, Clan Macdonald, and then you'd have several different other clans up under this one particular, you know, um, higher house. I, I don't really know the terminology. Uh, someone listening probably knows. Um, but but yeah, I mean, it, it, I think that you know if you brought up Knox earlier when we were talking about republics, and I think he saw that, but he saw that in a in, in a more modern light, mm. where now we're voting to send off our elders to go and represent us. Okay. And I think if we kept it that way, I believe that a representative republic would work good, because if you really think about it, what a representative republic is is say, okay, let's just start at the county level. You would have the elders of the county sit on a commission. Uh, then you would have elders sit on your um, in your state legislature in your state house, and then you would have your, your you know just so far and so far up. Um, I don't think there should be a federal government. I think it should just stop at the state. Right. <laughs> but but but, but my you stands. you um, neo Confederate you. Well, if if we think about it though, it makes a lot of flipping sense. Like. In my particular area, if, 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 you know, a person used to get elected because he had a good name behind it, you know, um, you know, like this, I'm just going to throw out some random examples. The Smith family is very well known within X County. Therefore, I think we should elect him because his family has a good name. Right. You know, uh, but then there's some, you know, like I can think of like three families off the top of my head. We're not sending them anywhere because they're all a bunch of hoodlums. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, and and Dabney actually touches on this a little bit when he when he talks about parental responsibility because he he talks about how you as a father should have a good name so that your children have a good name. And your children should have a good name because it brings a good name upon your father. And this this follows down throughout the generations. So when a family develops a reputation that's you know, they're they're a good family. Um, they become something of a cornerstone of, you know, their given community. Uh, and so they they become, you know, a, a representative of what a good upstanding member of this community looks like. Uh, that that's usually how most kingdoms, you know, even in even in England, that's how a lot of the the ruling families became ruling families. It's because they were very competent. Uh, and and they did things that were in the best interest of everybody, not just themselves. Um, but w one one bad thing about both tanistries and monarchies is uh, it does produce um, regional infighting. So so the the Scotsmans didn't want to submit to the uh, the English crown, <laughs> or um, well, I mean just just or or we can take it you know to an American context, the Hatfields and McCoys, right? Right. I mean that was two warring clans um, up there. You know, was it, was it Virginia, West Virginia? Uh, they were they were on the yeah Virginia and Kentucky. Uh, I thought it was Kentucky, but I didn't want to say that. Uh, so so take Hatfields and McCoys on the um. Uh, Virginia and Kentucky line, the um, you know, because we don't recognize West West Virginia, um, <laughs> and, and and they uh, you know, it, it made freaking national, you know, it, it's still a it's still a myth of America, right? Like yeah. because of these two warring families. I, I I think it was what like twelve people died, something like that. I can't really remember how many around there. Yeah, um, take that part. Yeah, take that part out. Uh, anyways, like, but but so that that's one of the bad things about the tanistry system, and that's why we would need some form of magistrate that is neutral to both sides. And, and I'm not really so sure that that could happen. I mean, we hear a lot about, you know, oh well, his cousin is the sheriff, so he's going to get away with stuff. Yeah, in 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 the current year, uh, I'm not so positive that um that type of stuff's happening. As much like I remember, we used to have a crooked sheriff, best sheriff we ever had. Um, <laughs> oh, and I, I'm like I'm being facetious, but not really because he did his job and he did it well. He did it well, but he he was so well connected with like all the different families around there. You could pretty much, if you were a member of one of those families, be be rest assured that you're you're good on whatever. You're never getting a speeding ticket. But at the same time, he did his job well, um, you know. So, but but anyways, <laughs> uh, uh, the, well, the other the other type that we kind of want to hit on, and you know, we've we've ragged on Nat socks a little bit, but just a secular dictatorship, which I, I don't think that there is any pros to those that the others do not offer. Well, that's um, literally what we live in right now. So, well, yes, I mean, we, we might live, you know. By name, live under a constitutional republic, but it, it's it's really just a big gay secular dictatorship. And the the you know the big thing about that is the the godlessness, and um you know the the 20th century was rife with secular dictatorships. 
uh, be they communistic or fascistic, um, they want to impose their own idea of what humanity is. You know, the two big, um, the two big ones uh, everybody goes to, and for good reason, uh, were, you know, uh, the Bolsheviks in Russia and the Nazis in Germany. And both were trying to create perfected human beings. Right? It was about them being the best version of themselves and not them being honoring to Christ. And they both met very similar ends. Um, uh, the one took a little longer to, to be defeated. Um, you know, God does not look kindly upon a nation that rejects him. Because you got to think, God is the king over all the nations, not just one. So, what we're seeing in America right now is America has rejected Christ, and now we're suffering from the judgment of God. Because instead of going to fascism or instead of going to communism or socialism, we've gone to secular humanism. And what are the results of that? Well, look around you. You're living in it. Yeah. Um, one of the things, though, is, is that there is no standard for their morality. Uh, so, so what I mean by that is, is how are they going to um, best best execute any type of moral laws? So every, you know, when I say moral laws, I'm using this very generic right now. Um, moral laws being like, thou shalt not kill. By what standard are we not allowed to kill? And, and I, I think when we look at places like um, Russia um, during the Bolshevik Revolution, they, they they didn't really care if they killed or not. I mean, what was it, like 30 million dead during the... Um, well, I would say USSR? they cared if they killed. They were trying to kill. <laughs> well, yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, total disregard for any moral law because they had no standard for the moral law. Uh, even looking at the uh, the French Revolution, you know, a total rejection of all social norms, all all of Christian history that, they, that France had at the time just totally flushed down the drain. Right. And, and they beheaded people by the hundreds. Um, and so anybody that rejects God's moral law is, is as my parents used to say, cruising for a bruising. Uh, they, they will not have any blessings from God bestowed upon that nation. Um, there will be hardships, fam there will be repercussions for ignoring the natural order of things yep. just because you think you can. And, and, you know, we kind of bring this up in our whole transhumanism discussions that we have uh, on a semi-regular basis. When you're trying to, to twist the fabric of reality, it's going to eventually snap back, mm -hmm. and, and a lot of people are going to get hurt. Um, so this whole, now that our government is, is, is you know, going for the gay stuff, uh, we're, we're definitely um in the works to for for some heavy judgment well i mean as your as your parents would say cruising for a bruising right i mean we're yeah we're just trying to dare god to do something 
and he he's taking us up on our bet. Um, he's going to do something, and it's not going to be anything that we really like. And we can't keep rejecting reality, um, which is what we've been trying to do for the last, you know, so many years. So, I mean, I think we've, you know, we as we established earlier, I, I don't think God's law dictates any specific form of civil government. Um, you know, our culture plays a big hand into it. Um, you know, I, I don't think that, I don't even think that, that uh, the, this types of systems that I would like for Dixie would be feasible in some place like China. Um, it's a totally different culture. They, they, they respond to the world in a different way, but at the same time, there are certain truths that, that are found within the Holy scriptures that we must use wisdom to parse out within our daily lives. Um, you know, um, how, how do we go about, uh, handling these, you know, certain situations and, and, and that type of stuff. Um, but in, in no matter what form one thinks would work there, it must be, have a firm foundation on what has God said about certain topics. So, so for instance, you know, um, thou shalt not murder. And that's applicable to all how this punishment is carried out. Like, okay, so one of the biggest one of the biggest um, debates between theonomists was, do we uh, punish the crimes in the same way? Uh, I think this was a whole uh, Rush Dooney Bonson controversy. Mm. Um, one side, I, I, I'm not gonna uh, ascribe the uh, ascribe which side is which, but. One side was saying that we must still stone people, uh, and I think the other side was saying that um, I think modern methods of execution are permissible. I'm I'm with that side that I believe that um, as long as the outcome is the same and as long as it is humane, then um, you know within the spirit of the law, I think those are kosher. Um, I, I'm not so not so caught up on, on the mode of these punishments being carried out. And that's where I think wisdom would pay a, play a big part in that. Yeah. And, and you know, what, what's the best way to go about it in your setting? Um, and this is why I think the idea of the general equity is a good, um, a good way of looking at it. And I, I think, I think God in his wisdom allows for some variability in the outcome and arriving at the outcome so you know that if you kill you are guilty uh, if you're guilty of killing then god has prescribed the death penalty for, for murder um and, and i i say killing i should be more specific it has to be murder right a just defense of your home is not murder uh, there are people who make that argument, and I detest that argument because it's not only unbiblical, it's evil. Um, you're applying guilt to someone who is not worthy of guilt for defending their family. That is a, a just and good thing to do. But I think wisdom's there. I think 
trying the 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 intent. So wisdom's kind of like the practical way of going about it. The intent has to be there. Honestly desiring that God's will be done and trying to exercise it in the best way in the most applicable way possible in your setting. Um and I and I think if if the desire is there and the wisdom is there, I think you can get really far with whatever kind of government system you have. So so I think to to wrap all this up, um I think if I can offer one pointer and that's to to read God's law, um mm-hmm. one of the one of the things that that the psalmist talks about is is him meditating on the law. Um one of the things that the kings of Israel had to do was to write their own copy of the law and read it every single day for as long as they live. Um, if we're going to believe that every man is a king, then we are ob- we are obligated to know what the scriptures say. Now, now, whenever the king was told to do this, you know they basically only had the Tanakh, uh, the um, the first five books of the the uh, Old Testament. No, yeah, the Tanakh. Uh, the first five books of the Old Testament. They might have had Joshua, but it probably was not within their personal, you know, um, law library. Right. I guess you could say. But but at the same time, it, it's it, it was it was pointing them to read God's word, read the infallible words of the Holy God, and then derive wisdom from that. And I think that even if we just read, you know, um, the book of uh, the book of Deuteronomy once every year. I think that we could glean a lot of wisdom from it. I mean, I would say do it more than once every year, but at the same time, when's the last time most people's read the book of Deuteronomy? Yeah. Um, but I think, yeah, I think, you know, given that principle, I, I think it would be a good thing that, you know, especially considering the literacy rates today, because um, literary literacy the literary the literacy rate is way higher today than it has been in history and so i think it would be a good idea um and i think it would be a good practice for men to be expected to as a you know as part of their education copy the scriptures write them out that way they know them and they can live them because you know this is uh i i've your word have i hidden in my heart right um and that that's a big part of it uh fathers setting the example for their children to read the word study the word to obey the word um because we are each prophet king prophets kings and priests of our home that would just be a good practice for all of us to do that. Uh, you know, each according to their ability. I think, you know, for some, it would be good for you to uh, write out the scriptures in the original language or to do your own interpretive word, work of the Bible. Um, I, I, uh, any Anything that you can do to really ingest the word of God and have it written on your heart and memorize it I think would be a, an amazing thing for people to aspire to, for men to aspire to, specifically.
Hey y'all, thanks for listening in on our podcast. If you like what you hear, please share and comment wherever you're listening to it. And check out our Gab page at Dixie Polis Podcast. If you want to contact us, please send an email to DixiePolis at ProtonMail.com or send us a message on Gab. If you like the music we're playing, hang out a little while and let the song finish. It's Wayfaring Stranger by Southern Raised, and you can listen to them on YouTube or go to their website at SouthernRaisedBluegrass.com. God bless y'all. Just